how we can know that you are in control and that you love us. God, we just um, pray that as we jump into your word now, God, that you would teach us, that you would help us to hear your voice, to listen to you, God, to listen to what you have for us. May my words be your words. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, well, this morning we're continuing on in our four-week series in the book of Ruth. And I want to encourage you if, you, if you missed last week and you plan on being here for the others, I would encourage you to go back and listen to uh, the sermon or watch the sermon, because really this is one big story. This is a night, really cool, one of the most exciting, I think it's one of the coolest stories in the Bible. It's very extraordinary, like we talked about last week. It beats any Harlequin romance novel possible out there. It is just amazing how God works in, this, in these people's lives. So I would encourage you to uh, check, uh, check that out. But if you remember from our time last week, we looked at chapter one, we explored this whole idea of God's sovereignty in our lives, okay? God's sovereignty in our lives. And if you want to follow along with the notes there uh, with a pen, the first one right off the bat here, I just want to kind of remind you, reword it a little bit. We saw that God being sovereign, this is what this means. God being sovereign in our lives essentially means that nothing happens outside of his influence or authority, that he is in absolute control of every detail and every moment of our lives, including heart attacks that happen to th mid-30-year-olds. God is completely, 100% in control of his universe, of everything, and therefore in our lives as well. What we learned last week, that believing that God is sovereign, it really what it does, it brings hope because what it does is it allows us to be able to see that we can be for certain that nothing that we experience is random. Nothing. Nothing happens by chance. Not a thing. Bless you. We saw that God oftentimes allows or really sets in motion hardships or adversity in our lives in really in order to set the stage for him to intervene in a way that we would experience his goodness and his loyal love and devotion to us in ways that we never, ever would have before. Interesting, as I'm preparing this sermon this week, when I get this text, that Jeremiah has gone into the hospital and he's had a heart attack. And I think about this very thing about God and his sovereignty, that so often he allows things like what is happening so that he can show up. So he will show up. And the, I, mean, I shed a lot of tears this, this weekend. Jeremiah's a close friend. We meet every week together. We look in the Bible together every week. So this was hard for me. This was really hard. But I was able to go back to, I found hope in this. That God's in control. He's 100%. Nothing got by him. And chances are he's going to use this to draw people to himself, for people to see his goodness and his love and his loyalty and his faithfulness. Isn't that amazing how God does that? I think a lot of times we would say, can we do it another way? But oftentimes this is what we need, huh? Or this is what's best for you. He knows what's best. That's the beauty of it. So the book, of, the book of Ruth, what it does, it reminds us, number two on your notes, that although God is sovereignty, he's sovereignty, his sovereignty, God rules over all creation. In his sovereignty, he rules over all, with absolute wisdom, power, and authority. Thankfully, he is not detached or distant, a distant observer of his creation. Thankfully. You know what they call that? People that believe in God? but believe that he's just off in distance, 
That's deism. Theism, sorry. Deism. Am I getting that wrong? Deism, deism yeah, it says deism. That's deism. Okay, there's a God. There's a God. But he's just, he got everything going. He set it all up. That was all great. Now he just sets back. That's not, that's not our God. That's, thankfully, that is not him. Author Kevin DeYoung writes this. He says, there's nothing wrong about celebrating divine sovereignty so long as we understand that God's inscrutable power is not exercised on a whim, but always an expression of love for his people. His sovereignty is pro-us, which is why the reformers talked about providence more than raw sovereignty. You've probably heard people say, in God's providence, he did this. In God's providence. Because in number three on your notes, it says, the concept of providence concerns God being for his people. It carries this whole idea of provision. It carries the idea that he's in control, so he's going to provide. It's knowing that because God is absolutely in control over all creation, that he cares so deeply for us. He will always supply what we need. Always supply what we need. Because of God's providence, we can know that as his children, we, we, he is always, always working all things, not only for his glory, not only because he's sovereign, not only he's great, but for our good, for our good as well. As the Apostle Paul wrote, familiar verse you've heard, and we know that for those who love God, some things, no, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. All things. He said it again in Philippians. He says, because naturally this means then that we can trust him to meet our needs. Paul again says, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. That's, that encompasses God's sovereignty. It's not that he's just in charge. He's just, nothing gets by him, but he's also, because he's great, because he has everything, he will provide for our needs. We've heard, you know, he owns a cattle on a thousand hills. He can do anything, and he will. That's who he is. So let me ask you this morning. Here's the kind of the question of this morning. What are you in most need of? What are you most in need of right now? Is it joy? Is it con- is joy and contentment, which seem to have you know, been this elusive thing for so long now? Maybe it's clarity. You need some clarity in some things in your life. You need some direction. Maybe you need some courage, courage to do what you know God wants you to do, but you've been struggling with that. Maybe it's peace and reconciliation with a family member. Or a friend, maybe it's just the assurance that you are unconditionally 100% loved by God and nothing can separate you from his love. Maybe it's companionship. Maybe you need forgiveness or wisdom or healing. Simply you're just needing the resources to pay your bills. What is it that you need? What is it you need from God? Maybe you're here today and you're wondering, how in the world is God going to meet my deep need? How is God going to do this? How can I trust that God, in his providence, will meet my deepest need? How can I know? How can I trust that he will do that? Well, that, my friends, is what the book of Ruth, especially chapter 2, we're going to see this morning, is about. 
That is what this is about. If you recall, little, just a little recap for those of you that weren't here. Last week we saw in chapter 1 that this man named Elimelech, along with his wife Naomi and their two sons, they fled to the land of Moab, remember, due to there was a famine in the land of Judah in Bethlehem where they lived. And while, they're, while they were there in Moab, Elimelech dies, leaving Naomi a widow. Soon after that, her two sons marry. Things are looking up. Things are looking a bit better. But then a few years later, what happens? They die. Then her two sons die, leaving her with just her two daughter-in-laws. Remember? Orpah and Ruth. Her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. And really, what they essentially no means of protection or provision. It's just these women back then. And back then, if you were a woman back then and you did not have a man in your life, man, their things could be really, really difficult it's when it came to provision and protection. Well, soon Naomi hears that, from that, the, that the Lord has ended the famine back in Judah and in, and in Bethlehem. So she decides to return to her hometown. And even though, uh, even though both Orpah and Ruth insist, remember, they insist, we need to come with you. We want to come with you. Remember, she pleads with them. She says, no, you need to stay here. Stay here. Get married. Don't come with me. My life stinks. You don't want to be around me. God is against me. You don't want to come back there. You'll be foreigners, all that stuff. So she insists that they stay, okay? That life would be much better if they just get married in Moab. Well, we see that Orpah says, okay, okay, I will do that. She's okay, and that's fine. She does the practical thing. She stays back, what Nomi wants her to do. But remember, after much persistence and proclaiming her loyalty and her devotion to her, remember that Ruth is just, I will do whatever. I'm going to be with you forever, she pleads, and Naomi says, okay, come. Come and be with me. Once they arrive, remember, they get back with this great excitement in her town. The, the, the town is buzzing. It's Naomi. She's back. Look at She's back. Where's her, where's her husband? Where's, where's the kids? And who's this Moabite woman? Yeah, remember her answer to them? was she, re she replies at the end of that chapter. She says, don't call me Naomi anymore. Don't call me that name. That's not my name anymore. Naomi means pleasant. Naomi means lovely. Don't call me that. Call me Mara, which means what? Bitter. Call me bitter because that matches my life circumstances. You ever felt like that before? Just call me bitter. Just, my life stinks right now. Life is really hard right now, and I should just be called that. This is her situation. This is where Naomi is at. This is where we left off with Naomi wallowing in her dire circumstances. No husband, no children. No family connection or means of providing for herself and for Ruth, feeling that God was completely against her, a feeling that maybe some of us in this room maybe have been tempted to feel from time to time. Where is God in all this? And where, where could, how does his sovereignty play out in all, where's the hope that's supposed to come in his sovereignty we feel these things, even like, even like what, as we see that Naomi, in Naomi's life, he provides Ruth, but she can't see it. She has this incredibly loyal person that's going to do be everything to her, but she, but she can't see even those good things. She's just so, like, turned in. Ever have that happen where all you can just see is your distress? That's so common for us to happen. So here we are. Picture these two women. They're back in Jerusalem, I mean Bethlehem, and they're probably sitting there with their head in their hands at the kitchen table just thinking, pondering, where on earth is our next meal going to come from? 
How are we even going to be able to eat? Things are dire. Naomi and Ruth desperately need God to intervene in their lives, to display this providence of meeting their needs. And as we're going to see as we begin in this chapter, that God is beginning to do that very thing. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2 of Ruth, where right off the bat, we're introduced to this new character who's going to become extremely important in the story. Look at the first three verses. It says, Naomi, now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the fields after the reapers. And she happened to come to a part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. Sorry, I need a fan going here. Um, so here we go. So we're, right away, we're introduced to this guy named Boaz. I don't think I've ever met a Boaz. Have you ever met anybody? Plenty of Ruths, plenty of Naomi's, no Boaz's. Uh, I, I, would, I would highly encourage you guys back there, when you have your kid, Boaz. It's a good, it'll, you'll see why. It's a good one. Because right away, we're given some very specific information about him. And really, this information is kind of, in a sense, to signify that he's going to play a very significant role in this story. First, we see that he's a relative of Naomi. That's the big one. That's a really big one. Right away, we're given something that's a key piece of information in the story. Next, we see that he was a worthy man, okay? Or as other translations or as tradition tells us, that he was a wealthy, he was an influential, and he was a man of noble character. This was guy who was an upstanding guy. This is the guy that everybody looked in the community and said, you know, when, when their kids were growing up, they said, see, be like Boaz. Be like him. He's the guy, he's the guy who you, you want to be like. Well, next we see Ruth taking a, uh, stepping up here and, and really taking the initiative uh, by offering to go glean in the fields to provide food for her and Naomi. Remember, Ruth had pledged that her undying loyalty to live where Naomi lives, remember? To that she's going to adopt her ethnicity and her religion. She wanted to be buried where Naomi's going to be buried. Permanent, loyal commitment. This was what, this was what Ruth was to Naomi. And really, remember we talked about how this is a picture of God's lo- loyal devotion to us as well. Now, that Ruth, now, what Ruth proposes here really is something that is um, a provision that was in the law of Moses to help provide for the poor and needy back then. Back then, the law of Moses said harvesters were not to harvest their entire field. Leave some stuff out on the edges. Leave some stuff for the poor people that are out there, kind of like their welfare system in a sense. Just let, don't take it all. Just leave a little bit. Leave a little bit for the poor people. Now, notice that in verse 3, we're told that after Naomi approves of Ruth's plan, she goes out, and what happens? She happens to come across the field belonging to Boaz. Oh, my gosh. What a dink! I can't believe it. Isn't that amazing? By some chance, Ruth happens to come across the field of Boaz. Really, what we're seeing here is God is at work behind the scenes in the smallest details, and really in preparing not only Naomi and Ruth, but for all of mankind to be extraordinarily blessed. Who would have thought 
that when we see by the end of this story how it's all about Jesus, <laughs> who would have thought it began by a chance happening of Ruth happening to glean in Boaz's field? This just tells us that God is doing, working in ways that we could never imagine, never imagine. So, no doubt he had, we see that he, he, sees, she, he sees that Ruth is out there. He doesn't recognize her, so he inquires from informant about her and finds out that she's this Moabite woman that everybody's been talking about that came back with Ruth. No doubt he's heard about her, this commitment of undying loyalty and devotion to Naomi. So, he gets an idea of who she is, and now she's learning. He's learning that she's this hard, diligent worker. They say she's been working hard. From the early morning until now, he obviously sees something extraordinary about Ruth. I don't know what was going on. The text doesn't tell us. Was this like a, hey, we, we don't know. We don't know. But he obviously, Boaz saw something extraordinary about her. So he proceeds to talk to her. Look at the next couple of verses. In verse eight, he says, then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged, charged the young man? Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Now, this is an amazing offer of generosity from Boaz. He offers her this unique and really this surprising protection and provision here. Not only does he urge her to continue, hey, stay in my field. Don't go anywhere else. Just stay here. Stay here for the whole harvest, okay? Don't go anywhere else. And he, then he says, stay by my female servants. What he's doing here is he's helping their, her to be in a safe place where she'd be identified as Boaz's, one of Boaz's people. Okay, so he's providing for her like crazy. He also has he's talked to his male workers. He said, hey, don't bug her. Don't bug her. Don't bother her. Don't harass her at all. She's got my word to be here. And that's not all. Let's check this out. He goes on to tell her, instead of drawing water for yourself, as the other women, if the other women got thirsty, they had to go to the well, draw the water at break time, get themselves. He says, don't, don't, don't even do that. I want you to go and get the water out of the vessels that the men have drawn already. It's already ready to go. Go ahead and just go get a drink. <laughs> Amazing. This is incredible. This is extraordinary. Now, look how, look how Ruth responds to this, how she responds to this kindness and generosity. In verse 10, she says, then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, all you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then, he said, I have found, then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord. For you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. Now, obviously, understandably, Ruth is, abso is absolutely what? She's so surprised. Why, why are you being so generous to me? 
Why me? I mean, I'm a foreigner. I'm not even one of your servants. I'm a foreigner. Why are you being so generous? And Boaz tells her, because I've heard about you. I've heard of your character. I heard of what you gave up. I heard that you're willing to come to a foreign land, a land that hates the people that love the land that you're from, that you've committed your undying loyalty to Naomi. I've heard about that. And I'm blown away. I am absolutely flabbergasted at what you would be willing to do and the sacrifices that you have made in order to honor your commitment. And now, then we see not only that, but he goes on and invokes this blessing on her. His blessing. He prays that she would be repaid by God for her loyalty, that God would provide for all of her needs. Really, he, he, and then he gives this picture. He says that he would provide for you like a mother bird does for his young. I should have David Gross come up here and give you an explanation of how the chickens take care of their young and how they love it. It's, what is his? No. <laughs> what he's basically praying for here, he's praying that God would provide this protection and he would provide all this provision for her that even he could never even provide. He just hopes, he just prays that it'll be heaped onto her like crazy. Here's the thing. Little does Boaz know in God's providence how he takes care of his people, God is using him God is using him as a means of providing provision and protection, not only to Ruth, but to Naomi as well. Number four on your notes, the truth is we never know how or when God in his providence might choose to use us to be the source of provision and protection for those in need. Our role is to simply be open to his leading as we pursue loving others. If we're truly going to obey the great commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself, we are going to be be very much like Boaz. Very much like Boaz. It's going to be a natural thing for us to want to do that, to take care of people, to love them, to encourage them. We see that Ruth is extremely thankful here. She's extremely thankful that tells Boaz that he has provided what? You've provided comfort for me. With your kind and your unexpected, really, your words. See, the truth is that God wants to use us as a means of providing comfort to others. And really, oftentimes, what that often means is really just a kind word of re- or recognizing, oh, job well done. How often do we do that? Some of, us, some of you are very natural at doing that. Others of you, I know that's something that's a little bit harder to you because you have maybe not been affirmed much a lot in your life. But as people of peace, of people of shalom, we are supposed to be the people that do this for other people by the kind words. Of, I'm not saying blowing smoke at people and saying things that, oh, this will make them feel good, but saying, that was a good job you just did. I really appreciate that. I really appreciate how the effort that you put, these kinds of things. Isn't it, when you get that kind of word, isn't that amazing? Doesn't that just encourage you? 
And that's one of the lessons we get out of this. We see here that God really wants us to do that. And God, so so Naomi, I mean, Ruth, who's probably just out there going, oh, God, like, you know, crazy. All of a sudden, she's starting to perk up a little bit. And God's kind of throwing her a bone here, throwing her a bone there. And he's using other people to do that. It's amazing. But Boaz isn't done. (laughs) Good old Boaz is not done showing his generosity, favor, and compassion towards Ruth. Look at verse 14. He says, at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the fields until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned and it was about an epath of of barley. So what we see here is not only does Boaz invite her to come and sit with him and the harvesters at mealtime, which would have been un- crazily unheard of, he personally offers him food, offers her food, and it's more than she can eat. She needs one of those little styrofoam things to put all the leftovers in. I mean, she's just blown away. This is, this is incredible. But he's still not finished. He's still not. He instructs his workers to allow her to glean among the sheaves before the reapers take, come and take all the barley out of it. Okay? And on top of that, he says, pull out some of the unharvest bundles for her to glean. This is just over the top. It's like, you know, I do this with my grandson. You know, you have a little kids, you want to play a game with them, and you totally give them answers or you give them a little extra thing, you know, because you know it's going to make them happy. You know, I, I, I find such joy in that. When I'm with my grandsons, I, I, I can't wait to, like, give them a little extra more. This is what Boaz is doing. Not only can you, are you free to glean, but he's telling people, just leave some extra stuff, you know, so she can grab more. And it says that she came out with this tremendous amount. What she came out with about 30 pounds of barley, which, which to put that in perspective, the full-on reapers, the reapers that were not just behind, but full-on, usually got one to two pounds a day. She got 30 pounds in one day. It's, it's amazing. This, as this, this incredible haul that she, that she gets. Now, in our last section, we're going to look really at the end here. Na- this is, we're going to find Naomi now responding to all that has transpired in Ruth's day. All that has happened with her that has gone on. Look at, look at, let's look at verse 18 and the first part of verse 19. She says, And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over. From being satisfied, after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. How in the world did this happen? Naomi's probably sitting at home going, oh, I hope she gets something. I hope we have enough for tonight. Oh, just, just enough for tonight's meal. Can you imagine? She just wants just enough to get them through the night until the morning. Or is she safe? Is she, I hope she's okay. Little does she know about Ruth's day. Because Ruth soon brings back this incredible haul and shows it to her. Can you imagine as she's walking into the room with this and Naomi, what? Naomi is just flabbergasted. And then Ruth pulls out the little plastic leftovers on top of that. 
And Naomi just can't believe what is going on. And we see here that when she sees all this, she recognizes immediately that the result of this haul, the result of all this could only be possible if someone had taken a special interest in her. That's the only way this could have happened. This is amazing. Remember, she says, blessed be the man. She sees it. Blessed be the man that took notice of you. Whoever that guy is, wow, I hope he is blessed. He's an amazing guy. But the biggest shock is about to come. Here comes the big shocker for Naomi. It's in the second half, start in the second half of verse 19. Here it goes. She says, so she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living and the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close to my young men until they have finished all my harvest. So what's happening, once Ruth tells Naomi whose field she gleans, and Naomi recognizes right away something, God is in this. God is so in this. And, And really what is pivotal to the plot of this entire story, Naomi realizes the significance of this coincidental, this, oh, I happen to come upon the field of Boaz. She says, This is a close relative of ours. Importantly, he is a family or a kinsman redeemer. Number five on your notes there. In a nutshell, here's what this is. In a nutshell, a family kinsman or redeemer, in this context specifically, was the nearest unmarried adult male blood relative who had the responsibility or the privilege to take a widow as his bride so that she was not destitute, therefore preserving the family line, which was so critical back then, so critical of preserving the family line. So this person had the privilege and the honor to be able to say, okay, I will redeem, I will, in order to, our, that our clan would be sustained, that health would happen, that we would be fully functional, I will do this. And this is who Boaz was. Can you imagine what's going on? Naomi's brain has got to be spinning. First, all that food. Now she's starting to see the possibilities here, huh? She's, she's going, oh my gosh, Boaz is our redeemer. My, my, man, you know, all my, my sons are dead. I have a daughter-in-law. You know, she's starting to... I wonder if, I I just wonder if. Now look how this ends. Look how this section ends. And Naomi said to Ruth in verse 22, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young woman, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young woman of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and the wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. So we see at the urging of her mother-in-law, Ruth continues to glean in Boaz's field, not only through the harvest that she came to for, but the whole next harvest as well, okay? This is like two to three months that she was given protection, provision, all this stuff that she was given. And not only would this allow her to provide for her and Naomi, But it would also give her a chance to be in constant contact with who? Boaz. 
Boaz would be checking on his field probably a little more now <laughs> than he normally did. Notice we're told here at the last, very significant, we're told that Ro Ruth kept close to the woman of Boaz. We've got to remember, when the Bible says certain phrases, you go, okay, that, okay. You ever, I read sometimes, like, oh, didn't you just repeat that? Didn't you just said it in a different way? We've got to notice those things. And here's one of these things we need to notice. She kept close to the women of Boaz. This is key. This is the same wording that is used back, remember last, last week we talked about how Ruth clung to Naomi? And it's that same word that's leave and, and cleaving that a husband does with his wife. It, it cleaving, this intimate closeness. It's that same closeness, that same word that's used here. The point is this, number six, last one on your notes. Though God is our ultimate provider, like Ruth who clings or keeps close to those who would ensure her provision, we must cling or keep close to the one who is our ultimate provider. Not just be acquainted with. It doesn't say Ruth was acquainted with the workers of the female workers. No. Ruth knew them. She knew a lot about them. She even went to these things called church and learned more about them, but didn't really like stick really close to them. And didn't really, no, she clung to them. Such a good message and analogy for us to cling, to be close to our, the person that is our ultimate provider, the person that's going to protect us the most. I don't know about you, but isn't it easy to instead go, uh, I know what else will help me? This. Maybe if I just leave, okay, they're still there. I still see the women, but I'm going to also this as well. This looks like a good place to go, or these people promised me this, or this thing promised me that it would give me, uh, that would provide for me as well. No. What we see here is that Ruth clung to the workers. She was close to them, and the same is with us. Remember, God being sovereign means that not only is he all-powerful and that he rules over all creation with absolute wisdom and power and authority, but because he cares so deeply for us as, as individuals, individually, he will always provide what we need, always, according to what's going to glorify him, but according to what's going to be good for us as well. Let me ask you that question. I want to ask you that question again that I asked you early. What are you most in need of? What do you need? What is it that you need to trust God to provide? I want to encourage you this week. Let me, let me encourage you to not only be willing, but to really choose to do whatever it takes to cling to and to be close to the God of providence. He's your, our ultimate provider. He loves you. He loves you, and he wants more than anything for you to know him in deeper ways than you ever could imagine that we could ever imagine. I think we sell God so short and we think, okay, I feel like I know God and God's going, I want you to know me so much more. I love you so much. I want you to know me more. Let me ask a few questions as we think about 
this, this little story here. What is it? Number first, first question. It's just two questions. What is it that makes trusting in God's providence that he will ultimately supply all our needs difficult to do at times? What is it? What is it? So this is kind of in the line of last week a little a bit, but what is it that makes trusting God that he will ultimately supply all our needs difficult to do at times? What's that? We're out of the habit of doing that. Very, yeah, yeah, definitely. What else? Gosh, yes. Isn't it? That's probably my biggest. Did you hear what he said? Timing. You know, we, we want what we want when we want it. I want this uncomfortableness to end now. I need things to be clarified now. That's me. I get that one. Patience is not my virtue. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. And Boaz was speedy at taking care of things. Yep. Yep, exactly. That's a great point. That's a, that's a great point. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else you can think of? What is it that just makes trusting God's providence so difficult at times? Yeah. Oh, gosh. I'm glad that's only you, Paul. <laughs> Gosh, no, so true. That's a great one, man. So true. Yeah. Well, the lack of understanding that it can't always be good, so why is there suffering? Yes. It can't be what God wants for me, but in a way it is because of Exactly, yeah, yeah. If God was so good, why would he allow? If God was so good, why is Jeremiah in the ICU right now? A lot of people are going to be asking that very question. That is a very loved family in this town. You've got to know that. And people are going to be asking that question. If and when the God piece ever comes up in the conversation. How could a good God allow that? That's a hard one to answer. But we know that God is in complete 100%. Not only is he in control, but he's going to provide for Jeremiah's needs, Dana's needs, his kids, need, his kids' needs in a way that will honor and glorify him and be the best for them. Yeah, good. Yeah, Michelle. The difference between wants and needs. Say a little more about that. Yeah, yeah, and we're so in a habit, right, of if I want it, I want it, and I should have it, yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, last question, second question. What are some things that we can do that can help us cling to or keep close to God? Just some practical things. Let's just make this a little practical as we end. What are some things, some practical things we can do that can help us to cling to or keep close to God? Being in his word. Being in his word, yep, for sure. And not because we have to, <laughs> and I have to have my quiet time every day, or I have to, but yeah, just letting, and, but not only be, that's a great one, not only being in his word, but let, letting his word impact us. Because I've been tempted by that lately to say, okay, I read, I read, I did my daily reading plan today, but wait a second, whoa, 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 whoa. Where's the impact for me? What else? Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, great one. Yeah, he's, he's, he's here. He hasn't left. God has not left the building. Exactly. Yes. Good. Yeah. Yeah, Kath. And that really kind of goes with kind of the, the, some of you would call tirade that I've been on lately about the whole idea that we need to be in each other's lives. It's just a part of who we are supposed to be as followers of Jesus. We cannot, like I said last week, we are not meant to carry our burdens in isolation on our own. It's not meant to, that's not meant to be. And it's not just to be knowing about each other, to truly knowing one another. So we can admonish one another, encourage one another, help, be, help, help one another see God is working, help remind people that the Spirit of God is in you, help reminding people that God's got this, and I'm going to cry with you, though, through it. We need to make room for those things, guys. We need to make room for those kind of relationships in our lives, because that's not going to happen here on Sunday morning. On Sunday morning, we celebrate that. The rest of the week... We need to go do it. Anything else you can think of that would just help us to cling to or be close to God? Yeah, Paul. What's that? Yeah. So true, so true. Yes? If you're a lone ranger, get more than one poncho. <laughs> I like it. Yeah. Yeah, consistent prayer life. Yeah, definitely. That, and however that works for you, consistent can mean for some of you sitting for a half an hour and praying. Some of you consistent is you've got times throughout the day where you are constantly in communion with the Lord. Yeah. invoking the, you're saying the God of providence. I, I have needs here. I, I don't, I don't, I meet with people and I'm in meetings all the time. I never meet with a person. I never go to a meeting and I never do sermon prep or anything like that without praying. I just don't because I know I need 
God to be a part of that. I need God's presence. I need God's wisdom. Because I'll muff it. I know me. Communion right now. Um, great time to just spend some time reflecting on what the Lord is just doing in your life and remembering what Jesus has done and the work he's doing and this whole idea of thinking about allowing him to be the person that we cling to for our needs. We all have needs. God is the God, the provider. His providence is perfect. So this is a great time as we, as the band's going to come up, they're just going to play some music. So I encourage you, just, you can come up, um, the, uh, take the elements as the music is playing. You can take them up there, take them back to your seat. However you, this is your time to spend some time with the Lord, just being with him, remembering what he did when he allowed his body to be given. He gave his body. Oh, that's amazing. He gave his body for us. And he shed his blood for us. And we do this to remember that, to remember that we have access now to his power to be able to cling and to hold on to him and know in our heads and our hearts he will provide for our every need. Father God, we thank you for this time. Thank you that we can take some time to reflect. And as we do that, God, I pray that your spirit we just meet us, each individual person, where they're at, and assure them of your goodness and faithfulness.